This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's, if it's uh, a killing or whatever. You just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and the men and women who were incarcerated there. This is Anthony. I'm talking to Sky down in Texas. Hello. How's it been going down there? It's been good. Just, uh, you know, hanging out under quarantine. So final papers are, uh, I think I've got about three weeks left until those are due. And then I will be heading home for the summer, hopefully things will have uh, opened up a little bit more by then, so we'll Yay. have to see. I can only hope that must be difficult to be so far from family. And It's been a little tough, I'm not going to lie, but how's it going up there? Oh, not too bad. Just still working in the office twice a week and working from home, editing videos and podcasts. And, you know, hopefully you guys are seeing some of the things we've been posting on our page. I've been making a ton of videos and uh, actually did a little mini video on the inmate I'm going to feature today, Roberto Samaniego. So I kind of talk about his, a really brief version of his story in that video. So check it out. It took me a while to edit that and put that whole series on our buried secrets, our inmates who were buried in the prison cemetery, to put all these videos together. So check those out. Yeah. Pretty cool. Yeah, Anthony and... is the master editor out there at the Old Pen, so <laughs> go check out his work. Yeah, my rudimentary uh, video editing skills are uh, put to work now. So it's a different time, different me, <laughs> <laughs> oh, different experience all around. So uh, you want to get to some stories, Sky? Let's get to some stories. Let's get to some uh, stories. we've got some stories today. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I'm talking today about number 9216 and number 10587, Virginia Lorene Pugmire. So, sources, before I start, uh, the majority of the information actually came from her inmate file. This She was one of the ones that they took a social history of, and so there is a lot of information about her early life and some sort of adjacent information. So I was very grateful for that. Idaho Daily Statesman articles, Ancestry.com, StAnthonyChamber.com, a Rexburg Standard Journal article by Lynette Staker entitled J.C. The First 50 Years, and then a Rexburg Standard Journal article by Lisa Daly-Smith, which is titled St. Anthony Girls Reformatory, to be featured by Ghost Adventures, and then Wikipedia. So I am going to be talking a little bit about the history of St. Anthony, because I have already talked about Pocatello, which is sort of where she's from. So I figured I'd do some background history on on St. Anthony. 
So, before we get started, just uh, buckle up, because this is an absolutely wild ride of a story. Just (laughs) the craziest story. So, Virginia Lorraine Pugmire, or Pug, as she liked to be called, was born (laughs) on June 26, 1936, in Blackfoot, Idaho, to Howard E. and Matilda M. Mead Pugmire. Her father was a boilermaker for the Union Pacific Railroad in Pocatello, and as we know, uh, you know, the Union Pacific Railroad was the largest employer out there of, of people in Pocatello. And Virginia was the oldest of seven children. So there was her brother Edmund, who was two years younger, a sister Leela, who was four years younger, Sarah, who was seven years younger, Linda, nine years younger, Carol, 13 years younger, and Vita, who was 15 years younger. So big family, lots of distance between the oldest and the youngest. And all were girls except for her younger brother, who was just right below her. And apparently her father wanted a son as his firstborn so badly that when she was born, quote, he felt the disappointment so keenly that the feeling was transferred to the daughter. And so because of this, Virginia felt a considerable rivalry with her brother, and she and her brother were always fighting. She felt like her parents paid him more attention than her. Interestingly, sort of despite her father wanting her to be a boy, she felt closer to her father than her mother, even though he rejected her most of the time. I think she just wanted his approval so badly that she really tried to do anything that she could to spend time with him and to be with him. It was also claimed, though, that her father beat her, sometimes with his fists, And then she said she wasn't sure why he did that. Um, She thought that they didn't get along simply because they were so much alike. So there's, there's kind of a, almost a cognitive dissonance where he clearly did not treat her very well, but she just like loved him so much that she sort of did anything she could to be on his good side and be with him. And then this again is according to her own words, her mother, quote, treated her mostly with indifference. So her parental situation does not, it's not off to a good start. Doesn't seem like she's comfortable and happy in her family. And really from her point of view, it's simply because she wasn't born a boy. Her family raised her in the LDS church, and she was baptized into that church at 11 years old, but by age 14, she had stopped going to church, even as her parents became more active. She attended school at Pocatello High School until 10th grade when she was 15 years old, and she dropped out because she ran away from home in February 1951. And when she dropped out, she ran away to Caldwell, where she lived with her aunt and uncle, where she picked some fruit at their home and was eventually picked up by her parents. But she didn't ever go back to school after that. This is where her trouble starts. So in November 1951, again, she's 15 years old, uh, 15 to 16, she stole a car with another teenage girl after the key was found in the ignition. They replaced the license plates on this stolen car with ones from another car that they had stolen, but they were they didn't get very far. They were arrested in Pocatello, taken to probate court, lectured, and then were set loose because this was sort of perceived as their first crime, and I think because they were juveniles, and I think additionally because they were women, they were not given that harsh of a sentence. So about four months later, in February 1952, she ran away from home again. 
and she was picked up after being found sleeping in a bus station in Salt Lake City, and they kept her in a detention home in Salt Lake until her parents came to pick her up. So she's just clearly not content at home, but doesn't, doesn't really seem to know where else to go, what else to do. So in June 1952, she and her family were visiting some family friends in Lima, Montana, and her and the son of these family friends and one other boy, they were all, uh, she was the oldest, she was about 16, and um, the boys were, I think, like 14 and 15. And so this is according to her, her and the two other teenage boys, quote, prowled several cars in Lima. They stole a flashlight, some 22 ammunition, and other various items from the cars. And she actually returned to Pocatello before they were caught. And so she was never questioned. Instead, the boys were caught and questioned. Most of the articles were returned. And as far as I can tell, she wasn't really implicated in this incident. But just a month later, she would be um, with actually one of the boys from that same June incident. It was the son of the family friend that they had been visiting. So they had stolen a car and they just start driving. And at some point, I couldn't tell at which point, but at some point she actually ditched this other boy and then, quote, traveled more or less aimlessly through Colorado, Kansas, and Arkansas. And then she turned back through Texarkana, Dallas, Decatur, Clovis, and so on to Arizona to the home of her uncle, unquote. So while she's living with her uncle for two weeks, she tries to get a job at a laundry for one week, and then she sold a twenty-two rifle that she had stolen from Idaho. And then she heard that the police were on to her and the car that she stole. So she forged a check for $156 from her uncle and, uh, and then returned to Idaho a week later. And she, you know, admitted to her mistake. She returned the car. She paid back the check. And she was not arrested for stealing huh. a car and taking a nation, nationwide joyride, basically. Because she went pretty far east driving from Idaho, I can tell you, through Dallas, and she kind of took even a longer way sort of around the eastern way, so she kind of drove east and then went down and then back up. That's so uh, that's a lot of driving. Mm-hmm. But she she wasn't arrested for that. But then, about a month later, she was arrested on a burglary charge and placed on probation. I couldn't find the details of this burglary charge. I think there were so many other details of so many other crimes that they just said she was just arrested on burglary and placed on probation. So then she stole $80 from her mother and ran away from home, therefore violating her probation. She was picked up in Colorado, and at this point... The officials are so frustrated, and so they finally sent her to the St. Anthony State Industrial Training School in October 1952. So here is a little bit of history of the State Industrial Training School in St. Anthony, Idaho. So St. Anthony was founded in 1888 by members of the LDS Church. The railroad came to St. Anthony in 1899, and a post office was founded in 1901. And uh, future Idaho Governor Charles C. Moore actually arrived on the first train to town, where he taught school and served as the postmaster from 1908 to 1913. In 1903, the Idaho legislature passed a bill to establish an institution for wayward youth, and so the State Industrial School was founded under the name the Idaho Industrial Reform School. 
Now, according to the article, uh, the JCC, The First 50 Years by Lynette Staker, she says, quote, the determining criteria of the fertility of the soil, unlimited supply of water and being near the metropolis of the county where waterworks and electric lights could be supplied at a very reasonable cost. A Tudor Gothic style school building was built in 1904 with power, lighting and a heating plant located in the basement of the building. The industrial department of the building included the carpenter shop, shoe shop, steam laundry, and cold storage. There was a culinary department in the rear of the basement, a chapel, public offices, dining rooms, dormitories, a sewing room, a dressing room, shower and bathrooms, and helps quarters in the building as well. So this is a a pretty modern school. This is uh, fairly large as well. They start taking children in in 19, you know, around 1904. And then in 1905, the name of the school is changed to the Idaho Industrial Training School. And around the same time, the school began a social calendar to help the kids sort of adjust to a better environment. They didn't want to bring them in and have them feel like they were imprisoned or or anything like that. They really wanted to try to foster a more positive environment to help the kids change their behavior. And so sort of this better environment included one outing to a baseball game between St. Anthony and Pocatello. And, you know, they went to this game and no one tried to escape. And so then that sort of proved uh, on the part of the administrators that these kids could be trusted to a certain extent that they could leave campus and they wouldn't run away and so they sort of continued this the social calendar and and these social activities for these kids then in 1911 so six years later there's another 80 acres purchased for $32,000 in order to build several more buildings and the boys of the industrial school actually worked on building the buildings themselves again sort of parallel to the experience out at the old Idaho State Penitentiary you know able to save on labor costs and also giving these these young men skills that they might be able to use in order to turn their life around Again, from that article, it says, quote, The children at the school were taught practical and scientific farming, market gardening, horticulture, stationary and electric engineering, steam fitting, carpentry, masonry, concrete, irrigation, laundering, animal husbandry, dairying, sewing, domestic science, household economy, piano, voice, all stringed and wind instruments, elocution, public speaking, stenography, typewriting, commercial law, bookkeeping, pharmacy, nursing, and athletics. So this is a, this is a well-rounded school. And if, if you notice, actually, those two categories were almost sort of gendered. You know, they start with market gardening, horticulture, engineering, carpentry, masonry, and then it switches to sewing, household economy, public speaking, stenography, typewriting. So there are, are activities for both genders to again, sort of teach them the skills that they need in order to be successful when they're released from the school. Mm-hmm. So as of July 1932, there were 235 boys and 70 girls at the school. And this is again from the article. It says, quote, a survey taken for the boys and girls showed that most of them were admitted to school for minor offenses such as theft, truancy, incorrigibility, and immorality for the boys. In the girls' cases, the most common causes were truancy, incorrigibility, theft, and immorality. And I, and I would imagine this is sort of the same case throughout the country, that these kids are 
bored. They don't want to go to school anymore. So they steal. They don't go to school. Their parents can't control them very well. The immorality charge is uh, quite an objective charge because what was considered immoral in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s is not necessarily considered immoral in quite the same way now. So after the 1950s, the Idaho State Industrial School became the Juvenile Correctional Center and changed locations. So it's no longer in, well, it's still in St. Anthony. It's just not on the original spot of the school. In 1921, the school had built a woman's dormitory and kept it running until the 1980s. And in 2013, a couple from California had bought the building and had some ghostly experiences. So... In 2018, Ghost Adventures came to do a ghost hunt there. And I don't want to spoil the episode for you, but there were findings. So, kind of a a spooky little spot in Idaho uh, history. And as of 2018, the California couple who bought the building, they actually did a spook house called Idaho's Haunted Hospital in the infirmary building of this women's dormitory. I'm not sure if they still do it. When I looked at their website, they did have events from 2019. So if you're sort of interested to see if they're still going to do it, then go check out Idaho's, so I-D-A-H-O-S, dash haunted dash hospital dot business dot site for upcoming events um, they did have a calendar there and they do also have a facebook page which does seem that it is being updated and that is idaho's haunted hospital so if haunted and scary things are your scene uh <laughs> go check it out it seems like it would be a really cool place to do sort of a, a haunted spook house or something not my thing, but it'd be kind of cool to be on the dormitory of an old reform building. So that is sort of a brief overview of the Idaho State Industrial School. Now let's get back to Virginia. So Virginia had been at the State Industrial School for about seven months. And then in April 1953, she, quote, made a statement to attendant concerning Texas killing. She doesn't make this, this, you know confession for seven months after she had been in in the prison so she's been sitting on this information for quite a while so they sit her down and they say i'm sorry texas killing what are you talking about so so here's what she says this is this happened toward towards the end of july 1952 which if you remember is when she stole the car with that boy ditched the boy and then traveled around went through kansas Colorado, down Arkansas, and then up through Texas. So this is at the end of July, 1952. She's on her spree. She's driving through the South. And near Texarkana, which is on the border of Texas and Arkansas, she picks up a hitchhiker and she described him as a middle-aged man shabbily dressed. So the two of them drive through Dallas and Fort Worth to Decatur, Texas. And Decatur is about three and a half hours away from Dallas-Fort Worth. And she, they arrive there between 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. At some point, before they get to Decatur, between Texarkana and Decatur, they had stopped for gas. And the hitchhiker says, you know what, you pick me up, I'll pay for this. And so the hitchhiker gets his wallet out and... Virginia notices when he opens the wallet that he has a large wad of cash. And when you're traveling around the country, you need money. She doesn't have a lot of money. And so she'd spent all her money, and she thought robbing him would be a good way to get some more money. So they finally get to Decatur between, again, 9 p.m. and 11 p.m. 
And they stop at the Decatur Cafe, and the hitchhiker, he's hungry, so he's going to go into the cafe, and he, he he's going to buy some hamburgers. And Virginia says, oh, I'm not hungry. I'm going to stay outside, make sure everything's, you know, looking good with the car, radiator still looking good, things like that. So while she's out there, she opens the hood, she's supposedly tinkering around in there, and then while she's out there, she removes the hubcap from the right front wheel of the car. So they get back on the road, and they drive for a little bit longer, and then she turns off the highway onto a dirt road, and she does it under the premise of stopping and finding a place to eat. So even though he ate, she didn't. And so she's like, I'm hungry now, let's stop and get, you know, I'll grab something to eat. And then there's a rough spot on the road, and she drives over it on purpose, and then she stops and asks the hitchhiker to see if the hubcap had come off of the wheel, because I think that was a sort of common thing that would happen. I don't, you know, we don't hear too often now of hubcaps coming off of cars just randomly, Mm -hmm. but I think that was a little bit more common in these 1940s, 1950s cars. So, you know, she says, will you make sure everything is okay out there? So he gets out and he says, sure enough, she lost the hubcap. And he says, I'll, I can help you look for it if you want. And she says, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. So she turns the car around and shines the headlights where the man is looking for this hubcap that is really, frankly, in her trunk. And so while the hitchhiker is looking for the hubcap, Virginia grabs a rifle that she kept under the front seat. And she says she pulls out the rifle and she says, I'm just intending to rob him at this point. And then, this is according to her own words, quote, Instead, without speaking a word so far as she recalls, she began firing. The hitchhiker falls face first into a ditch. Virginia takes the wallet out of his back pocket, rolls him over on his back, shot him once between the eyes, got in the car, and drove off. And she made this confession to the attendant at the state industrial school and they have her take a polygraph test and there is no reaction indicating any falsehood on this test so it seems that she is absolutely telling the truth the official who took this statement says quote she states the victim had not mistreated her or molested her in any way but in fact had befriended her in purchase of food and gasoline She does not recall feeling any sudden panic, anger, or any other emotion immediately prior to opening fire. She is unable to give any explanation for pulling trigger. It's really fascinating. There is really no explanation for this. She doesn't know why she did it. She doesn't seem to... Oh, it's messed up. It's so remorseless, too, it seems like. Yeah, totally. And I wonder why she decided to, to talk about it. Yeah. What made her... Because it doesn't seem really in any way that she was riddled with guilt. It doesn't seem that she did it in the hopes of, like, getting a lighter sentence because she was not at all a suspect in mm-hmm. in this crime. And so why she decided to, to tell someone about it, I just, I'm not sure. After she gives this confession, she is transferred to State Hospital South in Blackfoot for observation. And again, they actually have her repeat the story again with a polygraph. There's no evidence of falsehood. They also find no psychosis or any reason for permanent residence in the hospital. It seems that she's perfectly sane. They can't tell that there's any sort of mental illness that may have caused any sort of break or any sort of dissociation. 
it seems that she was under full faculties and just did it really uh, cold-bloodedly. And so while she's at the hospital, Idaho authorities get in touch with Texas authorities who corroborate the story that they had indeed found the body of a man near the area that she had described. So after she's actually returned to the state industrial school after about two weeks in the hospital and in May 1953, so she confessed all of this in April. So she goes to the hospital for two weeks, comes back within two weeks in May 1953. She actually escaped from the industrial school, but was actually returned a day later by her parents. So after getting in touch with Texas authorities, you know, they kind of discuss what it is they want to do with Virginia. And so in August 1953, she is committed to the Texas State Youth Development Council from Wise County, Texas authorities. And they sent her to the Texas State School for Girls in Gainesville, Texas. So, you know, very similar kind of school to where she was before. Now, she's not tried for murder in Texas, which is very interesting. I think she couldn't be tried for murder because she was a minor, and the rule was, and this is fairly early on in juvenile delinquency, and so they didn't quite understand juvenile delinquency in the same way that uh, we understand it today. Basically, because she's a minor, there's sort of this idea that there is less of culpability, that, you know, even if they commit heinous crimes and are old enough to understand better, that they are just subject to behavioral detainment, at least in Texas. So she doesn't go on trial for this murder. I'm not sure if they had much evidence other than her confession and this really the circum... I don't know. I don't even know if you can call it circumstantial. I think in the fact that she was able to say where it was and that indeed there had been a man found there. But I don't know if they had any evidence really besides that. And so the Texas, there's a Texas state official who actually writes the warden, or I think writes sort of the council, a board of corrections. And he says he's kind of confused as to why Virginia was held in Texas rather than just returned to Idaho for her punishment. And he theorizes that the Wise County officials had wanted to wait until Virginia was 18 and then charge her for murder. But that procedure was actually illegal in the state of Texas. And so... Mm. They just kept her in Texas for a little bit. She behaved very well in school. She had a good attitude toward authorities and, quote, was very pleasant and at times rather jolly. And she was discharged from the Texas State Youth Development Council on February 5th, 1954. So she was there about six months and she was returned to her parents to live in Pocatello. So if that's uh, not enough of a life she is about 17 at this point that she's returned to Pocatello. And she stays out of trouble, but only for a few months until June 1954. And in June, she wrote a $73.14 check, made it out to Loreen Pugmire, and signed it with the fictitious name of D.A. Bringhurst, and cashed the check at Bargain Barn in Pocatello. As soon as she cashed that check, she left Pocatello and traveled to the southern states for about two months. She returned to Pocatello in August 1954 and turned herself in. I don't know why. It seems she got away with it. Or I guess the other option is, since it was made out to her, they knew it was fictitious. They said, if you turn yourself in, we won't arrest you. And so she turned herself in. She was placed on probation after pleading guilty to the charge of forgery. 
And she kept her probation and everything was fine. No. No. She violated her probation, not just in one way, but in lots of ways. So she violated her probation by associating with persons of ill repute, keeping late and unusual hours, failing to make restitution on the check that she forged, and committing new crimes. Now, here are the crimes, the new crimes that she committed. Oh, no. And there's multiple. And all of these are actually with various accomplices. I didn't necessarily want to get into the names of these accomplices, which were listed. There was just a lot of names that would have gotten really confusing. So in April 1955, she stole a watch from her employer in Ely, Nevada, where she had gotten permission to go and work, stole his watch and took off. In June and July 1955, she burglarized the Municipal Golf Course, Fraser's Market, Cash's Services, and the Aldous Grocery Store, all in Pocatello, so over those two months. She then forged a $43.85 check at the Idaho King Food Store. She stole Twinkies and other snack cakes from the Market Spot Store in Alameda, Idaho. She used a six-foot length of garden hose to siphon gas from cars, and one night she stole 30 gallons of gas from the Carl Nelson construction trucks in Alameda. And then uh, she took a rifle and shotgun from her father, pawned the shotgun, and the rifle had never been recovered. Wow. Which is That's a lot insanity. Of so yeah. much that she's doing, frankly, within two months of being placed on probation. So because of all these major violations, Virginia was sent to the Idaho State Penitentiary for 14 years and entered on August 4th, 1955. Her statistics, she was from Bannock County, race, white, sex, female, obviously, age 19, height 67 inches, which is 5 foot 7 inches, weight 135 pounds, gray-blue eyes, hair brown, complexion light, no military record, her occupation is listed as farm laborer. She is single and has no children, and she quit education in the 10th grade. Her Bertillion chart, she has a set of false teeth. Not sure why that is. She had a small birthmark on the right side of her chest, and then a large birthmark on the back side of her right arm. And then, this is very rare, she had a couple of tattoos. The first tattoo was on her left bicep. It was a girl in a bathing suit with the name Laverne above it, which is a a really interesting tattoo, especially to be on a woman. Right. And then on her left wrist, she had a rattlesnake with the name Sunny beneath it. (laughs) So I wonder if she ever regretted those tattoos because those are clearly names of people. Yeah, the girl in the bathing suit I just find so interesting because that is, it's a very typical tattoo, like sort of one of those like really old fashioned ones that you think of when you think like tattoos, like just a pinup girl. Um, So it's really interesting that she has it. I'm really fascinated by that. But that's, I mean, you know, they don't ask her about her tattoos. I wish they did, but they don't. So we actually have an oral history taken in February 1993 with former inmate Charles Sharp. And it's actually, it was taken while he was incarcerated at the Idaho State Correctional Institution. So you'll hear clanging and, and things, but he talks about his very first tattoos that he got at St. Anthony as a 14-year-old boy. Well, the first one I got was a girl's name. Um, I was in St. Anthony. I was 14 years old. It was on my left shoulder. And I got it 
because I was 14 years old and I thought it was pretty neat. I, some of the older guys had tattoos, and so I decided to get one. And I talked to the guy that was going to do it and said, well, what do you think I ought to put on there? And he said, well, what do you want to put on there? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, do you have a girlfriend? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, okay, we'll put her name on there. And that's what happened. And uh didn't have any special meaning or anything else, um, unless you can attribute special meaning to wanting to be like the older guys to a tattoo, and yeah, that's, that's what it meant. Yeah, 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 it was to, to fit in, and, and uh, in a lot of cases, uh, for kids that age, particularly in the reformatory, they're, they're a means of um, maintaining a facade that, hey, I'm a tough guy. Don't mess with me, I'm a tough guy. Most of them are scared to death. You know, I mean, here they are in a state reformatory surrounded by supposedly mean kids, you know, and, and some of them are mean. Um, so some of them do those kinds of things for a defense mechanism. In my particular case, it was just plain stupidity. <laughs> and, uh, and I tend to view all my tattoos that way. The next one I got was, uh, I was... 15 and still in St. Anthony. In fact, the next two I got, I was 15 and still in St. Anthony. And they were on the insides of my forearms. One said uh, Lady Luck and the other one said 7-Eleven because I uh, fancied myself a gambler. So she comes into the women's ward and according to my account, there were at least 12 other women in the women's ward when Virginia entered. And the women's ward, as we know, can really only sort of comfortably, and that's sort of in quotes. It can only comfortably fit about 14 people, so when she entered, they were darn near capacity. And then two more women would enter the penitentiary through May 1956, with only one woman leaving, which I think would then keep the women's ward at about 13 of 14 available spaces. So this is just packed to the gills. This is one of the times in which the women's ward has the highest population. Mm-hmm. So that's just something to sort of keep in mind moving forward. Now, I wanted to read this because this is one of the more interesting parts of Virginia's story. So again, this is the report when she first entered the penitentiary. And I want to read this word for word. So you know that these are not terms I'm using on my own. And as well as you, for you to understand how LGBTQ plus people were actually viewed and quote unquote understood in mm-hmm. the 1950s. So... This is what the official says about Virginia. It says, It was noted upon admission that Virginia is very masculine in appearance and manner, expressed interests, and she also seemed to have considerable insight into the nature of this. She recognizes her masculinity and masculine interests, sees that they are also probably related to her feelings about and relationship with her parents. She has identified with her father, not with her mother, says she wanted to be a boy for as long as she can remember, and has acted as a boy. She asserts that she has had sexual feelings for both a boy and girls. She reveals that she has had sexual relations with a boy she felt she loved when she was 18, states that she had no other heterosexual relations, says that this one experience was quite satisfactory to her. She states that she has also had sexual, quote, relations with girls before and after her experience with her boyfriend, and asserts she really believes she enjoyed the homosexual and heterosexual relations equally well. She could not see the contradiction between this and her recognized masculinity. She feels that all her sexual 
sexual expressions are fully under control, that she doesn't need to indulge in any of these relations, that she indulged for pleasure, possibly excitement, that she had no drive to continue these relations, no compulsion, that she could, quote, take it or leave it, and she felt that she had better, quote, leave it, that to continue in these practices would likely only get her into trouble. She recognizes that such practices are viewed as abnormal socially and felt that she could quite easily quit indulging in such practices. She does not see that her homosexuality is a particular problem for her other than she will have to exercise limitation on her, quote, appetite. It is thought that she is probably correct, but it is almost unpredictable, except in a negative way, judging from her past history, whether or not she will exercise this control. So, at the very least... Virginia is displaying bisexual behaviors. She doesn't see it as an issue, but the prison officials do. I think that that's really interesting. There are a few women who sort of willingly admit that at least they had sexual contact with women, though they are usually quick to say like, oh, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean anything. I'm not that way. And she kind of, you know, she sort of goes along with it. She says that she feels like she could take it or leave it. That, you know, she probably should leave it because she'll get in trouble, but she's not emphatic in saying like, oh, I'm not, you know, homosexual. Overall, her behavior within the prison between August and May 1956 is unclear. But on May 3rd, 1956, she comes before the Board of Corrections to ask for a parole release. And because of sort of her admitting of her, quote, abnormal sex behavior... The Board of Correction felt it more appropriate that she spend some time at the State Hospital South to make sure that, you know, mentally everything is stable, I guess. Yeah. So the Board of Corrections writes a letter to the administration at the State Hospital and they say, quote, At present, she states she wants help. We'll cooperate with you completely and do the best to get her life straightened out. She seems to have a change in her views on making a social adjustment, unquote. And... At the same time, she also admits that several of the accomplices with whom she had committed that list of crimes to violate her parole were, quote, sweethearts or girlfriends in Pocatello. So she seems to actually be quite open about talking about these relationships that she's had with with women. And I think that that is quite admirable in that she is, you know, willing to to take that part of her personality on at a time when it is absolutely not something that you do. Mm -hmm. So she remained at the State Hospital South until July 1956, when the clinical director of the hospital stated that she had made necessary adjustment, and so he recommended a release on parole, which was granted to Virginia from the hospital in August 1956. So this is not where the story ends, like not even close. Oh, Uh, So Virginia just, she cannot stay out of trouble. It just seems it's impossible for her. So a report is received at the end of September 1956 about a pretty major parole violation that Virginia had committed. So on the morning of September 26, 1956, Virginia goes into her father's bedroom and takes the title to a 1948 Chevrolet car that her father had actually let her use to drive to a job where she picked potatoes. And, you know, she gets this title and she tells her mom that she's going to go to her job in Arco, Idaho. She drives away in that 1948 Chevrolet. Without having left town, Virginia actually 
exchanges the 1948 Chevrolet for a 1949 Plymouth, signing the title with the fictitious name Carol Larson, age 22. And then she meets up with two friends who were ex-students, uh, ex-inmates, I guess, at the Idaho State Industrial School, and together all three of them leave town. The police also suspect that she was involved in an $800 cash burglary of the Idaho Wholesale Grocery on the same day, but she claims that she was not involved in that. But she does say she's open to saying that she and her friends drive down to Fredonia, Arizona, and actually were stopped at a checking station where they were questioned about the car. And so, you know, unable to sort of produce matching documents of her and this Carol uh, Larson that had signed the title to the car, authorities in Fredonia contact authorities in Alameda, Idaho, and Virginia is returned to the Idaho State Penitentiary as a parole violator on October 9th, 1956. She said that she had no good reason why she left the state and violated her parole. She just thought that she was smarter than her parole agent. Oh, no. So she's back in prison, and while she's in prison, she works on the maintenance of the yard with the lawn and flowers, and she doesn't violate any rules, and so she is paroled again in October 1957. And I think the reason that she clearly has a troubled past, but I think the reason that she keeps getting paroled is because the women's ward is so full. They cannot afford to just keep people in prison. They need to get them out some way. And so parole is the best way to keep them sort of under your supervision, but not have them taking up space in the women's ward. So she's paroled again in October 1957, and about a month after being paroled, on November 26, 1957, Virginia marries Deverell Conlin, who is an airman second class in the U.S. Air Force. But Conlin left for service one day after getting married. So they aren't, you know, they, they pretty much have the wedding night, and then he leaves a day later, which is actually, the interesting thing is this is quite common during World War II. Uh, 57 is between... Korea and Vietnam. So there's not a major war happening, but you know, the military always is involved somewhere overseas. So she stays out of trouble actually for for quite a while, about 10 months. And then on August 9th, 1958 at 4 a.m., Virginia and three men attempt to burglarize the Wee Amble Inn at 440 Yellowstone Avenue in Alameda, Idaho. Virginia is arrested on the scene and re-enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on August 27th, 1958. And the thing is, if she had waited another two months, she actually would have been off parole. So that probably was frustrating to her, but at the same time, she doesn't really have anyone to blame but herself for that. Right, yeah. So things are quiet in the prison for essentially three to four months. And then three days after Christmas, on December 28, 1958, Mrs. Ivy O'Neill, who was the matron of the women's ward, locked the inmates in the cell house at 4 p.m., which was protocol. So if you've never been to the women's ward, there are ostensibly three ways in which these women were locked inside the women's ward. So you have the locks on the individual cells. You have a lock on the door that goes from the cell house out into the yard. And then there is a lock that leads from the the main yard into basically the outside world. 
So they just locked them in the cell house. They were able to sort of roam around the common area. They weren't locked in their cells, but they locked them in at 4 p.m. So they had to be done with their work outside and with their outside activities at 4. So they lock them inside. And then at 10.30 p.m., guards would actually come in and lock them in their individual cells. So as far as we know, there are no guards in the cell house while they're just hanging out for about six hours. And so at 9 p.m. on December 28th, an alarm rings in the turnkey office. And at the same time, there's some noise and commotion heard around the women's ward. And so Mrs. O'Neill and two guards open the door leading into the yard and they see that the door to the cell house is wide open. There is at least one inmate who's actually outside of the cells, but the rest had been locked inside of their cells. And there are tables, chairs, and a short ladder, and this ladder had been used to climb into top bunks. And they were all stacked against the inside wall, and three inmates are missing. Apparently, the three missing inmates had threatened the eight other inmates with knives, scissor blades, and iron pipes and forced them into their cells and locked them in. Then they picked and broke the locks to the outside yard, climbed over the wall, and no alarm had been raised for over an hour after they had escaped. And obviously, the reason I'm telling the story is because Virginia was one of those inmates. Uh, Of course. Of course. The other two were Nancy Christopher and Marianne Gardner, who both were in for forgery. And so actually, all three of these original sentences were for forgery, um, though Virginia seems to be, she had quite a bit of trouble outside of this forgery. Mm. So around 8 p.m., Virginia knocks on the door at 1224 East Bannock Street in downtown Boise, and she asks the homeowner, his name is Dennis Miller, if he could call her a cab because her car had broken down. And, you know, he says he didn't notice anyone else around, so he calls her a cab. The cab driver actually picks up three girls near the address and drives them to a truck stop east of Boise, and this is the last place that anyone sees them together. And then supposedly a woman named Betty Jo Ann Johnson actually picked up the three of them, and then they all sort of went their separate ways. And so details of what she did on her escape are not known. But she is apprehended in Kimberly, Idaho, three days after her escape on December 31st, 1958. Uh, So happy new year to her. And then Marianne Gardner is picked up in California on January 3rd, 1959. And Nancy Christopher is found in Texas on January 10th. So obviously uh, she's going to be in a lot of trouble for that. In June 1959, while she's in prison, her husband DeVerl files for divorce on the grounds that Virginia had been convicted of a felony. So she's brought back to the prison and she actually has to serve out the rest of her forgery sentence for another 18 months. She's released on August 27, 1960. She had served five years, 23 days, including two failed paroles on a 14-year sentence. So she's actually, if you just look at base numbers, she's actually one of the inmates who served the longest for forgery. But again, it is because she fails parole twice. And then, um, even though she's released from her forgery sentence, she is immediately charged with escape, which is a three-year sentence on the very same day. So August 27th, 1960. So finally, after all this trouble, Virginia finally gets it together and is released from the Idaho State Penitentiary on April 10th, 1961. She served seven months, 14 days for her three-year escape sentence. 
And again, I have to wonder if it's because the women's ward is just getting really full. Uh, this yeah. escape was like pretty egregious. So she was released pretty soon after. But as far as I can tell, that was it. She did not get into any trouble anymore. And after her divorce record in 1959, I couldn't find any other records. And so I don't know what happened to her. Uh, She just sort of disappears. I have to wonder, you know, did did she go on to live a more lawful life? And then I also wonder if she embraced her LGBT identity, if that was what she felt was, you know, part of her story. Did she embrace that a little bit more? And if so, what was the nature of it? But these are just, you know, these are questions that we will never have answers to. Wow. So you no death record or anything? Mm-mm, I couldn't find anything. There is someone who interestingly has, her name is Virginia Pugmire, but it is decidedly not her because there are marriage records of this other Virginia Pugmire while our Virginia Pugmire is in prison. Huh. So, yeah, I couldn't find her anywhere Interesting. after after that. So Well, it sounds like hopefully oof. she got it out of her system. Cause... I mean, I don't know what other crimes you could commit. She committed every crime <laughs> in the book almost. And got away with murder, essentially. Essentially. But, I again, that's such a strange aberration. And that's not to say that she deserves to get off scot-free for it. But it does seem, the rest of her crimes don't seem particularly violent. And so, what what were the circumstances of this? When I first read that, it, like, blew my mind. Because I knew, obviously, that she had escaped and, you know, she was sort of considered one of the, like, more, I guess, criminal, maybe. Uh, mm-hmm. And then I found that fact about her having committed murder and I was blown away, if, if you'll forgive the wording choice there i just was so shocked because she was in for forgery and she you know wasn't very smart about how she lived her parole but she didn't seem like a violent person and so it's just such an interesting case to me but yeah so that is the life and times yeah virginia pugmire that is a fascinating story and she literally she like committed every crime yeah like crazy. <laughs> even escaped from prison yeah yeah all right well good work Scott. That thanks was fun. yeah it was fun that's i think that's the most involved story i found since uh, since we started ladies and gentlemen thank you for listening to our podcast and supporting programs created by the idaho state historical society Like so many other cultural organizations, ISHS is facing tremendous operational challenges because of this pandemic. Without your help, these difficult times could adversely impact educational programs and ISHS's ability to connect Idahoans to our shared past. If you have the means, please consider supporting the Idaho State Historical Society during Idaho Gives, a program of the Idaho Nonprofit Center, which ends on May 7th, 2020. With your help, ISHS will continue to serve over 110,000 adults, 15,000 school-age students each year in person and hundreds of thousands more virtually through educational programs, inspiring exhibitions, fun events, genealogy, and family history, research use, and technical assistance. Help us reach our goal by visiting IdahoGives.org and searching for the Foundation for Idaho History. All right, Anthony, let's uh, let's hear about what you've got this week. All right, I've got a fella named Roberto Campos Diego, number 8215, 
and it's very Texas-centric. So I feel like Roberto and Virginia may have been a little bit similar. There are a lot of kind of parallel things that's all in the 50s. We just happened to like hit a similar person. <laughs> this, this happens. We got yeah, this happens again. a we lot. We always seem to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Roberto Campo San Diego 8215. My sources, of course, inmate files for him and another inmate. We'll get to at the end of the episode. Idaho Daily Statesman articles. The Twin Falls Library, they actually have a chronicle of newspapers from Twin Falls. Those are all up in their archive. Uh, Super valuable information for that kind of eastern Idaho, central Idaho crime details. The Texas State Historical Association articles on Fabens, Texas, and the Gatesville State School for Boys. Collection of statements made to the Ada County Prosecutor's Office for an investigation on a stabbing that occurs at the Old Pen. And this September 1945 training manual called Pulling, Piling, Topping, and Loading Sugar Beets and uh, Ancestry.com Files. So, Roberto Campos Samiego was born on November 7th, 1922 to Carlos and Luz Samiego in Favens, Texas. Now, both of his parents were born in Mexico, and they moved to the United States. And Fabens is in El Paso County. It's just south of El Paso, which is, you know, it's below New Mexico, and it borders Mexico. Old Old Mexico, Mexico. yeah. Yeah. It's between New Mexico and Old (laughs) Mexico, uh, right there on the border. And like Rupert, Idaho, and many towns in our country, it was named after a railroad worker from the Southern Pacific Railroad. And he was an, an attorney named George Fabens, who served as an officer for the railroad company. And around World War I, canal systems began developing in the area, and investors in the cotton industry actually saw the land as a perfect location for, for their product, for cotton growing. And this brought an influx of workers in the early 1920s, which may have been what motivated Roberto's parents to immigrate to the area from Mexico. Little's known about Roberto's family and their whereabouts, though I did find one Ancestry.com file that listed Roberto's father's job at the City Waterworks there in Fabens. According to his intake, Roberto stated that he had served in the state school for boys in Gatesville, Texas, between 1936 and 1937 for theft. The warden noted that there was no school for boys listed at present time, which I thought was so strange. I found that he was actually officially charged with delinquency and served from July 17, 1936, and released on leave of probation on July 31, 1937, to a Mr. Gin, G-U-I-N-N, in Juarez, Mexico. So he was released across the border, which I thought mm-hmm. was fascinating. Uh, he said he worked in, in the kitchen and in cold storage and de- listed him as a good worker. He was also described as an alien, and he couldn't read or write. He had no records of escape while at this Gatesville School for Boys. And so I actually looked up this Gatesville State School for Boys and found that it was the first institution in the southern United States dedicated to rehabilitation and training for juvenile criminals. And it was established in 1887 and opened in 1889. And Gatesville is it's pretty much in central Texas, just west of Waco. And when it opened, young juveniles were taken from all these different Texas prisons in the 1880s from across the state and brought to central Texas to be housed by themselves away from, you know, these older convicted men. And the website showed that in 1940, the population of the prison was at 767 males under the age of 17. That's literally 150 more people than the old pen could hold at full capacity. So this is full of these teenage troublemakers, these delinquents, 
and they basically they had hundreds and hundreds of acres of farmland and they were having these boys working on fields and then providing them education and other things. Uh, the school evolved throughout the years and eventually became a prison for adult male offenders in the 1980s, which it remains today. So Roberto was arrested numerous times throughout his life and mostly for crimes he committed while under the influence of alcohol. And uh, on the file, it noted that there's no real significant personal or family history they could find on Roberto, though record indicates that mother had been in prison before. States the child has been arrested two times prior to commitment. No data on family is available. And I couldn't find any information about Luz San Diego, his mother, and what she was locked up for. I, I dug and dug, and I think I found one newspaper in Spanish in which she was invited to a dance around the 1920s, around when Roberto was born. But uh, other than that, I couldn't find any other information about her. So kind of kept digging to see, you know, around his 20s, it would be about the time of World War II. So I found Roberto's World War II draft card, which he registered on February 16, 1942, when he was 19 years old. And he was still living at Fabens and, and listed himself as the head of the house and his father, Carlos, as his next of kin. And at the top of the card was penciled in note, this tiny little note that said he was in the county jail in El Paso when he was registered. Yeah, I don't think he uh, requested to sign this draft card. I think it was forced upon him while he was incarcerated. So that's kind of the only way I know anything about where he was at at this point. In 1943, while World War II was raging, Roberto told prison authorities he served in the Army, and he listed his service dates as little more than a month before his discharge. In all of his files, it says that the type of discharge he received was unknown. But in May 1951, the Major General William Bergen of the Department of Defense actually wrote a letter to the warden stating that no Roberto San Diego could be found or identified in U.S. Army records, and that they even ran his fingerprints and couldn't find any record of him. A letter later arrived from El Paso from the deputy sheriff who spoke to Roberto's father in August 1951. And it said, Dear Sir, in regard to the letter on information on Roberto San Diego as to his being in the Army, his father stated that he has never been in the U.S. Army. He stated that in 1946, this subject was away for two years in Mexico. The only information that his father had while he was in Mexico, that he was in the penitentiary for murder. This subject has also been in the Reform School in Texas. The subject was in El Paso County Jail various times for offense committed against the state. It's all this information that I couldn't verify. I couldn't find any more detail. Was he serving a charge in Mexico for murder and only spent two years there? Hmm. I don't know. Just based on the rest of his life, it kind of makes sense. So let's get to it. In the late 1940s, Roberto was wandering a lot and doing all kinds of different odd labor jobs throughout the Northwest, bouncing between Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. In 1947, he listed his job hauling fertilizer, but the location was redacted in his file. In 1948, he worked on various farms in southern Idaho as a day laborer. In 1949, he worked various jobs around Hood River, Oregon on different farms. In 1950, he returned to southern Idaho to work on farms, and that year he was arrested twice in Rupert for fighting and once for getting drunk. And I found an Idaho State Journal in Pocatello that he was arrested for vagrancy in March of 1950. On the evening of November 4th, 1950, Roberto was drinking at a party in Rupert with a former Idaho State Penitentiary inmate named Josiah Setters, and they met up at a pool hall. 
And Joe, as he was known, had served at the Idaho State Penitentiary three separate times, first in 1910, 40 years prior, for passing a fictitious check in Shoshone County, then in 1943 for forgery in Bannock County, and finally in 1947 for forgery in Twin Falls. On November 4, 1950, he was 77 years old. He was an itinerant blacksmith when he crossed paths with Roberto. Earlier in the day, Joe had actually stopped at the house of a reverend to ask for money to go to Pocatello. And soon after, he was seen leaving the pool hall with a package, which was most likely a bottle of wine, and another man who was most likely Roberto Samaniego. At some point in the evening, they got into a drunken argument. Roberto began punching this elderly man terrifically about the head before picking up a screwdriver and stabbing Joe Setters to death. Uh... Yes. So the Twin Falls pathologist who later performed the autopsy said that the stab wound was in Setters' mouth, which penetrated the throat. So he shoved a screwdriver Uh, into this man's mouth and and cut his throat that way. Oh my gosh. Roberto put his body in a car and he drove to Max Hadenfeld's bean house where he dragged Joe's body underneath the porch of the loading platform. And then Roberto skipped town. The next morning, the body was actually found by Union Pacific section foreman Nick Lapps and Sheriff Ron Hawks, but it had blood and dirt on his face and head, which made immediate identification impossible. Car tracks and footprints were tracked in the soft dirt where Roberto dragged the body under the porch. An investigation began, and officers had three suspects. Roberto Campos Samaniego at the top of the list. Sheriff Hawks arrested several suspects who were held in the county jail, but none of them panned out, so Roberto became the prime suspect. On November 20th, just over two weeks from the November 4th murder, photos of Roberto were printed up and posted in conspicuous places around the town and sent to other local vicinity sheriff offices. A murder warrant was issued, and on November 24, 1950, a man matching Roberto's description was arrested in Newport, Arkansas, for public intoxication. Everything seemed right. He said his name was Campos, which was a known alias. It was the middle name of Roberto. And the description of his tattoo markings seemed all correct. So Arkansas authorities held him, but they actually let him go because they felt like he was the wrong man and they released him before checking his fingerprints. So the sheriff in Rupert was very livid that they would release this man. Yeah, as he should be. Uh, He thought he had lost his suspect, yeah. And the trail for Roberto turns cold. Meanwhile, Roberto had fled to Walla Walla, Washington, where he is found working topping beets. Uh, Of course, I had to look into what that meant and found a September 1945 labor training manual called Pulling, Piling, Topping, and Loading Sugar Beets, written in English, Spanish, and German from the Montana State College. I know you're thinking, why German? It was because this was printed so that German prisoners of war could be sent and trained on how to pull beets out in the fields. And uh, Idaho ranks second in the 11 U.S. sugar beet producing states. And sugar beets account for 55% of the United States sugar production. So I think we're all doing our part right now, eating all the sugar we can. It's a really important that sugar beets are processed in the proper way to ensure that they're fresh and they can be turned into sugar. And topping is is extremely grueling work. Uh, one team 
marches up the line and handpicks the beets from the ground and then arranges them in, in these neat piles. And then the toppers follow behind and pick up the hefty beets with this hook and cut off the top with a very sharp knife with a single stroke. And then the beets are tossed into the back of a truck. And it's backbreaking. And the sharp hooks and knives lead to a lot of really bad mm-hmm. cuts. We'll see some of that in Roberto's Bertillion. He would have spent hours and hours in these fields just kind of hunched forward, cutting these tops of the beets off. You know, he would have been completely anonymous while he was working in these fields. It wasn't until he started drinking that he would get himself into trouble and ultimately lead to his present sentence. So on April 17th, 1951, this is, you know, six months, almost half a year from the murder of Josiah Setters, Roberto is drinking with a couple of men named Ray Aguirre, who worked for the Union Pacific as a section hand at Walola in Washington, and Joe Valdez. And Roberto and Ray, they got into an argument, and the two started to push each other around, and Roberto actually pulled out a knife, and Ray realized he was up against this dangerous person. So he started running away from Roberto, running down these railroad tracks. Roberto catches up to Ray and stabs him in the upper left arm and above the right hip with a small but razor-sharp oh pocket my gosh. knife. Yeah, and the Union Pacific flagman, his name was Peter Weitz, and if you remember back from last week's McLennan episode, what a flagman was for the railroad, he witnessed the attack, and he actually chased the two down the tracks, and he held Ray, Joe, and Roberto in place until authorities arrived. So Walla Walla County Sheriff's Office and, and agents of the Federal Bureau of Investigation arrived in less than five minutes. Ray, fortunately, was not in serious condition from the attack, Joe Valdez and Roberto were both arrested, Joe being charged with being drunk in a public place and serving as a material witness against Roberto. So it was a good way to get him to to squeal on Roberto about the whole event. The officers asked Roberto his name, and he said his name was Jose S. Hernandez. And it took less than a day for officers to discover his true identity, probably with the help of Joe Valdez and Ray Aguirre. Mm-hmm. And they discovered that he was wanted for the murder of Joe Setters and Rupert from the previous year. And FBI officials actually charged Roberto for fleeing Rupert with unlawful flight as he attempted to avoid prosecution for the murder. They checked his fingerprints and tattoo markings, which all matched his extended record. They had their man. A week later, Sheriff Floyd A. Stewart of Rupert was excited to close out this murder investigation, returning to his hometown of Walla Walla, Washington, to collect Roberto and return him to Idaho. He said he always hoped that a man he wanted would be apprehended in his old hometown. He was pleased that a man as vicious as San Diego was apprehended here. So he gets to return home and collect this future convicted murderer, and Roberto is brought up for trial for murder in the first degree on April 26, 1951. But when the judge asked Roberto if he wanted a preliminary hearing, Roberto said he did not understand him. So the trial had to be pushed back until the translator could be brought in. His bail was set for $5,000, but was never posted. He sat in the jail until May 12th when he was brought before the judge and he pled guilty to lesser charge of manslaughter because authorities felt that there wasn't enough evidence to support a first- or second-degree murder charge, and Roberto's lawyer encouraged him to plea guilty to manslaughter instead. So, two days later, he arrives at the prison. And on his intake form, Roberto actually wrote of his crime, I was accused of killing a man by the name of, and of course his name is Mm -hmm. redacted in the file, but it was Joe Setters, in Rupert, Idaho, but I do not remember anything about killing him. 
I was supposed to killed him sometime during the fall months of 1950, but I'm not sure of the months. But the commitment says it was committed on November 3rd, 1950. I was arrested in Walla Walla County sometime during the month of April 1951, but I do not know the exact date. I was brought back to Idaho and was arraigned on May 12th, 1951. I pleaded guilty on the advice of my lawyer. He said it was the best thing I could do. I do not know that I did not commit the murder, which I think is such an interesting I, line. I do not know that I did not commit the murder. Signed, Roberto Samiego. What? Yeah. So he's I, he's basically, through this whole thing, he's just saying, like, I'm too drunk to oh, know what okay. I did. I was like... Like I, the double negatives I don't know me. that I didn't do it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember writing it and then I read it again and I wrote it again. And I was like, wait, is that? Yeah, that's what he wrote. He just continually got blackout drunk. And so there is a chance he really doesn't remember committing these crimes. Prosecutor actually wrote, deceased body was found in Rupert rather early in the day. He had been dead several hours. It was learned that deceased that the defendant were together during the preceding night and were drinking heavily. While the defendant was promptly charged with homicide, he was not apprehended until the arrest in Walla Walla a few weeks ago, following a fight in which the adversary was severely injured. Defendant admitted the killing, but asserted it was done in a fight. Deceased was known to be inclined to fight when under the influence of intoxicating liquor. The state appeared to be without proof that the killing occurred under any circumstances except as admitted by the defendant. Upon a sudden quarrel and heat of passion, the defendant was convicted upon his plea guilty of voluntary manslaughter. So, intake, Roberto Campos San Diego, number 8215, crime, voluntary manslaughter, sentence, 10 years, plea, guilty, date, sentence, May 12th, 1951, date, received, May 14th, 1951, county, Minidoka, race, Mexican, age, 28, nationality, American-born Mexican, birth date, November 7th, 1922, place born, Fabens, Texas, color of eyes, brown, color of hair, black, height, 5 feet, 7 inches, weight, 140 pounds, complexion, dark, deformities, none, circumcised, no, vaccinated, yes, tattoos, several, liquor, yes, smoke, yes, gamble, no, dope, none, religion, Catholic, education, quit in the third grade at Fabian's grade school, marital status, divorced, and I never found any evidence of his marriage, occupation, common laborer, uh, how long in Idaho, four or five months. The Bertillian notes that Roberto had a slightly Roman nose, a medium build, and regularly shaped and sized ears and chin. There were several small scars noted on his face, including his nose, cheek, and above his right eye and around his mouth, where it is noted that his teeth were bad. He had vaccination scars on his left arm. He had scars on his left bicep and inner forearm. He had the classic heart pierced by a dagger tattoo on the back of his left bicep and a heart with Madre Mia, my God, written on it on his outer forearm. He had a cross below that near his wrist and another cross near his thumb. And there's another undecipherable tattoo that was almost erased on the back of his left hand. And he had a crescent-shaped tattoo on his right forearm, as well as a couple scars that were one and two inches long. On the back of his right arm was a heart with R.S. Loves F.A. written in the center of it. And uh, so Roberto San Diego loves somebody. Uh, I wish I could have found out who that was. And below that, closer to his wrist, was a girl's head. And then there are several more scars around these tattoos. And there's a two-inch scar above his groin that is noted as being caused by a Chaucer infection. 
uh, which is complication from a sexually transmitted disease. And he also had a three-inch scar on his right upper butt cheek. Okay. When he arrived, he was put in the fish tank, which in 1951 was in what they called number two house, which is what we now call new cell house or 1890 cell house. And everybody in this deadlock fish row would be questioned and analyzed there. And he was given his first job. May 21st, 1951 to November 11th, 1951, he worked in the soap room. And old pen inmates actually made their own soap. And I'm planning on doing an episode on the inmate who first began this process, who's written about extensively in the prison newspaper The Clock on a future episode. So after his stint in the soap room, Roberto was put on cell house construction duty on November 11th, 1951, which he held until May 27th, 1952. During this time, the largest cell block was under construction. This is number four house, which has four tiers with 20 cells per tier and four men per cell. So it could hold at max capacity 320 men. The concrete and the cells were all constructed through prison labor, and each cell not only had modern plumbing installed, but it also had a radio system which prisoners could purchase headphones from the commissary and plug them into these little outlets between the bunk beds and listen to up to two stations chosen, of course, by the prison authorities. There were large piles of cement gravel on the ground where the basketball court now stands, and Roberto was on cellhouse construction duty for about a half a year before getting into trouble on May 27, 1952, when he knifed an inmate named William Buffalo, number 8317. William was serving time for assault with intent to commit the infamous crime against nature from Bannock yeah. County. I haven't been able to pull William Buffalo, which, you know, like Buffalo Bill's name, uh, I haven't been able to pull his file yet. So I don't know the details of his crime, but it may imply that he was attempting to assault uh, another man sexually. Mm-hmm. Regardless, he was in for a sex crime, so Roberto's attack would be seen as not a huge deal to the rest of the prison population. So Roberto spent from May 27, 1952 until August 20, 1952 in solitary confinement in Siberia. So hot summer months that he would have spent in there. Captain Gilbert Talley noted that Roberto had completed punishment and was given another chance to work. And so he returned to work on August 20th and worked less than a week in cell house construction before he was reassigned on the 26th to yard janitor duty. And that meant he got to clean up everybody else's messes and clean the grounds. Probably helped with most of the common areas, the loafing room where the shirt factory is and the dining hall. The chaplain noted on a form around this time that Roberto was Catholic and attended mass when work permitted him to, but that he is an excessive drinker and considered a poor risk to be released in society. Roberto had served as the yard janitor until May 29, 1953, when he was taken to the segregation unit. And a month later, on June 5, 1953, he requested to be moved into Siberia away from the segregation unit. Now, I couldn't find any details of what he must have done, but uh, a lot of other inmates said that he was constantly attacking and knifing other inmates or threatening to attack and knife other inmates. So Gosh. He c- yeah, he could have been fearing retribution from one of these things, or he could have been trying to attack somebody who was also in segregation or in Siberia. Regardless, I don't know his next move until September 15th, 1953, at about 11.30 a.m. I know a lot of detail about this moment, because on this date, Roberto was standing in line where the basketball court now sits, 
where the inmates could congregate and chat before joining the two lines at the base of the stairs leading up into the dining hall. So the men were all standing amongst these piles of gravel, kind of in the shadow of this cell house construction, when Roberto ran from his group in the direction of a man named Frank Lane, number 7699, shouting, I'm going to kill you, you black-eyed son of a bitch. Frank Lane was serving a 5 to 15 year sentence for robbery after holding up a convenience store called The Fountain Lunch on State Street in Boise in 1949, and he and his partners ended up with $62 from this robbery. He was busted after trying to hold up the Panda Club, but was chased out when the patrons began throwing beer bottles at him. Frank had a lot of friends at the prison, and uh, he turned and saw Roberto chasing after him, and he started running away from him. Yeah, yeah Roberto had a straight razor from the prison's barber shop in his hand. And Roberto caught up to Frank and began slicing at him, and he ended up cutting him on his left hand and two times in his chest. The two men actually tumbled over, tripping on a pile of gravel, and Roberto attempted to pin Frank down. But somebody tossed Frank a knife. Roberto raised the straight razor, but Frank was quicker, and he pulled the knife up, and he cut Roberto's throat, severing his voice box Ah. and clipping his carotid artery. Roberto put his Ah. hands to his throat and began coughing blood, and Frank pushed him aside, jumped to his feet, and he turned and, and started running towards the yard captain's office next to the chow hall. Roberto got to his feet and followed, blood pouring from his throat. Oh my gosh. He made it to the captain's office where he was directed to the hospital for treatment, but it was too late. The wound was too deep into his throat, and Roberto was pronounced dead at 12.08 p.m. Frank was immediately taken to lockup and questioned. So prison authorities quickly rounded up all the men who had witnessed the attack there on the basketball court. We have 47 pages of the best examples of the convict code of do your own time, do your own number. And there's even an oral history by a guard who witnessed it and another inmate kind of explaining the convict code named Charles Sharp. And he says, the convict code said that number one, my word is the only thing I have. I have nothing else. If my word is no good, then I am no good. It also said that I do my own time. I don't cause injury to anybody unless they cause injury to me. And if that's the case, I deal with it in my own fashion, to the best of my ability, without hesitation or reservation. This made for a pretty violent environment sometimes. Sometimes, by and large, at least at the Idaho Pen, most people got along pretty well. If you didn't, I mean, if you had a problem with somebody, it was highly likely that it would turn out to be a serious problem. You could very well get stabbed over it. So the prison authorities, they round up these men, and J. Charles Blanton, the deputy prosecuting attorney, as well as prosecuting attorney Blaine F. Evans, Ada County Deputy Sheriff Lauren Robinson, Deputy Warden Mark Maxwell, and Warden Lou Clapp interviewed 18 inmates and two guards who witnessed the attack. And these are pretty illuminating quotes that I pulled from this 47-page deposition here. So they begin by interviewing Frank Lane, who said he had known Roberto for about a year, but that Roberto was in lockup most of the time. He knew him because both men were making horsehair belts for another inmate named Potter, who had been running a hobby shop selling bracelets, belts, and other silver items. And the interviewer asked Lane if Roberto had threatened him before. And he said, yeah, about two two or three days before in the laundry room. He said, he's going to get me for helping Dick. He got in trouble with Boss Dick, and we kept him from cutting Dick. And that was the only reason he could have had. And so uh, we'll get to who Richard is in just a moment. So Roberto had pulled a razor on him in front of about three other inmates at the laundry, but someone had jumped in and, and stopped Roberto from attacking him. Asked if he knew who 
Frank said he didn't know, but Frank had protected a younger inmate named Dick Bostick, or Richard Bostick, who was about to be sexually assaulted by Roberto in the prison chapel a few days beforehand. And uh, when asked who gave him the knife, Frank said he couldn't remember. He also stated that Roberto had made a request upon him for immoral purposes, which Frank had refused. Authorities then questioned a guard named P.H. Tyler, who witnessed Roberto running towards the captain's shack, and he said he was bleeding so bad, he didn't know where he was going, and I met him there. And he led him to the captain's shack and to the hospital. And Frank came to him soon after and surrendered and admitted that he was the one who had cut Roberto's throat and offered the knife up to him. They next interviewed a convicted murderer named Carl Morris, number 7853, who explained everything he saw happen, but didn't know where either blade came from. And when asked if he'd seen trouble between Frank and Roberto in the past, he said that Roberto had cussed out Frank on a number of occasions and asked why Carl responded, I don't know, Frank just said he was crazy. The interviewer asked, was San Diego asking for it in your opinion? And Carl responded, yes, several times he caused trouble. So everybody's kind of turning it against Roberto in this, this deposition. They then interviewed William Baker, number 8625, serving time for grand larceny. And he recounted the attack and said it just looked like Frank hit Roberto when he was down. And it wasn't until Roberto started running towards the captain's shack that he noticed blood pouring from his neck. He also recounted another time when Roberto threatened Frank, and Frank told him he didn't want trouble. William Baker reveals the most about the attack, saying that just the day before, Roberto had threatened him while he was working in construction, and Roberto had walked up to him with his hand in his pocket, staring him down, and another inmate had to come over and run Roberto off. So why was Roberto going to attack William Baker? William had caught Roberto with a kid backed up into the corner, and he had saved the kid, and Ugh. yeah. Ugh. He sounds just like the worst, like just the worst Seriously. guy. And he was constantly trying to and uh, sexually assaulting younger inmates. So, he, yeah, it sounds like Roberto was trying to lash out at all these men who were basically preventing him from sexually assaulting other young inmates. So they, they <sighs> interview another guard named Ed Manser. He said that Frank refused to give up his knife right away. He said, I'm not going to give you the knife until you get the razor from Roberto. And so finally, after they, they find the razor, which Roberto had stashed while he was running to the hospital, even then he was not, you know, he was still thinking about himself and protecting himself. So he didn't want to walk in with this stolen razor. Then they interview Nathaniel Bailey, number 8833, who was in for bad checks. And he actually guided Roberto to the hospital and said that Roberto told him he wanted to die just moments before he did. Uh, he also revealed where Roberto tossed the razor, which was near the corner of number three house. And we actually have the razor on display at the old pen right there in the entrance of five house, maximum security. In that collection, you can see a photo of Frank Lane showing the cuts that he has on him. And you can see this straight razor. When asked what he thought of Roberto, he said he has taken after several guys with a knife. And one thing and another, he is a guy who just stays in trouble. He stayed in trouble all the time. Next, they interview Edmund Simpkins, number 8094, who was in for rape, and he added that he thought the whole attack was due to Frank saving Dick Bostick, Richard Bostick, from being assaulted by Roberto, who was known to cause problems in the yard. Then they interview Walter Lay, number 8174, whose story we're going to hear about when we discuss Chlory and Herring in a future episode, who is another inmate that Sky will cover, and he was serving a 
term for second-degree murder in Ada County, and he added the story about how violent Roberto had been and these sexual assaults that he had been committing in the yard. Then they interviewed Dangerous Danny Williams, number 6066, who we discussed last season on episode 12 of this podcast. And this was the point when Danny had been released from these different things. He was working in the chapel as an assistant to the chaplain. And he had been in the chapel a few days earlier when Roberto wanted to assault the young inmate in there. And he said, yeah, I was sitting in front of the chapel. I settled the case. It was the day before yesterday sitting in front of the chapel and the Mexican came up and said he wanted to use the chapel. He wanted to take a boy in there. And I said, I would not permit that. And he said, don't say no to me. And I said, well, you can't use the chapel. And he walked away. Then they interviewed S.A. Church, number 7953, who described the shank that seemed to just appear at the gravel pit within Frank's reach. And the shank appeared to have a handle made out of a broomstick. So they wanted to know details about the shank, and he seemed to know the most about it, but still nobody knew who set it there for Frank and any other any other details. Then they interviewed James K. Smith, number 7287, and he has some of the most con-code answers. So they asked, did you see what happened out there at all? No. You did turn the razor into us, Sure. Do you mind telling us how you got the razor? I will tell you I got the razor. Did he hand it to you? Sure. What did you do with it? Oh, nothing much. Did you give it to the guard? After a while. So he reveals that Roberto was working for him, making hair belts for about a week, and he was doing his best to keep him out of trouble. They asked, Have you seen him in other trouble out here with other fellows? And he said, I I wouldn't make a statement. I might have. Later, he asks, I understand you had been trying to keep him out of trouble. And he responds, yes, sir. Has that been quite a full-time job? Just about. In your opinion, what has been his main problem? Do you think he was mentally unbalanced or naturally mean? And he responds, I think he was crazy. If anyone said anything he didn't like, he went and he got a knife. I think he was just a nut. So then they interview Ronald Brewer, number 8483, who was 17 years old. And when asked who handed him the knife, he said, I don't know. And when asked, did you see someone hand it to him? He said, I saw someone's hand. And as a boy, he was a target for these older predatory inmates. And Roberto had attempted Mm -hmm. to assault him uh, after backing him into a corner at knife point, in which time Frank had actually stopped Roberto from assaulting him. They interviewed Gary Smith, number 8525, who was serving for bad checks, and he reiterated the attack on on Ronald as the catalyst between Roberto and Frank. Then they interviewed all these other guys, Frank Green, number 8774, Paul David Bond, number 8429, Roy Stedman, number 7765, John Perry, number 8550, Jack Kyle, number 8512, and Delbert Swatzenberg, number 8376, and they all basically reiterated everything about the attack. They all said the knife seemed to just kind of appeared there in Frank's reach. They had no idea who gave it to him. I'll eventually talk about uh, Schwarzenberg's story, which is fascinating. And then they uh, interviewed James Allen, number 8612, who said that just a day before, on September 14th, 1953, Roberto told somebody had promised him some hair for a belt, and he said he didn't get it. And he said, I am going in and cut his throat over the horse hair. And he said when he told a man he would do something, he did it. 
and he hadn't done it, and he was going to cut his throat. Asked if Roberto had trouble with Frank Lane, he said, I never seen Frank have trouble with anyone. No one has trouble with Lane. Lane never bothered anyone. He never had trouble. He is quiet and tends his own business. I never heard him argue. So all of this is backed up, and with all of this information, it didn't take the prosecutors long, just a day, to deem that the death of Roberto Samaniego was done in self-defense, and uh, Warden Clapp reiterated that Roberto had a record of being a knife wielder. The next day, uh, an attempt was made to reach Roberto's family in Texas, but with very few records and information about their whereabouts, they could not be contacted. And so Roberto was taken to the Ralleya Mortuary, where the death certificate was filled out and then buried in the prison cemetery in an unmarked grave. Uh, We have an inkling of where we think he may have been buried, but we do not know. We do have a guard who worked for a year in the prison during the time of the attack, and this is his oral history discussing the burial. So, this interview was done with C.W. Vanderford on June 25th, 1992. This is kind of troubling, I will admit. A child line one night in front of two houses. He made a pass at somebody else, and he stuck his hand up getting his throat cut. Got his hand cut. Somebody else stuck a knife in his hand, and he cut the Mexican's throat. The Mexican was from Mexico, and he was mean, and he died right there, right on the sidewalk. His pantcuffs was full of blood. He wouldn't let us take him to the uh, little hospital we had over here. The guy that was cut wouldn't let you move him? No, the guy got his throat cut, the Mexican. Yeah. Didn't want to be moved, you mean? Uh-uh, because they knew he was dead. And he died there. And then the undertaker brought out a box. And it sat in the pickup right out here. And they went up and they was told to dig a hole in the, in the cemetery up there. If they hit another grave, move over. Because there was nothing marked. There was a few stones. And there's still a lot of them buried up there. It ain't got no markers. Yeah. So the bull gang went up there, and they didn't want to dig the hole. But we got it dug, brought them back for dinner. The undertaker showed up with the box, but not the coffin or the hearse. I don't know who got the bright idea, whether it's the warden or who it was, but they come up and get the trustee with his whites on. They powdered him up in flour, put him back in that box, and just slightly tacked the lid down. So it was our job to go up there and put that box in. And we went up there, and we put it in, and I told them to pry the lid off and leave the lid laying there. And they opened that up, and that guy set up, and they scattered like a cubby of quail. They caught one down here on Ormsburg. <laughs> and there was one jump turkey fence that was 12 foot high. He cleared it, never even touched the top of it. He was so scared. And we never did get them back up there to fill the grave in. But I can remember that. I know there was guards lined the wall up here. They knew what was going on. But they done it anyway. But they, his sister in Mexico didn't want him back. Mexican government didn't want him back, so they buried him up here. Huh. Now, his grave might be marked. I can't tell you what he what. But you could start in a chow line and pull a shake down and just watch the grass, and you see knives go out every night. 
out of their pockets. This is a horrible, messed up prank that they did, putting a trustee in this box and lowering him down in place of Roberto Samaniego's body. And I, it's such gallows humor. It's such a morbid thing to do. And it's, it's, just, yeah. it's just wild to me. But I think that if you're around this and you're witnessing stuff like this, like you'd be so desensitized to it. Ah, oh, it's mm-hmm. just wild. But you know that that is the life times and crimes of Roberto Samaniego and it, it sounds like he died pretty friendless and that nobody really mourned his death and uh his unmarked grave is kind of a, a testament to to his life and and the trauma that he left behind him yeah well and this i guess maybe this is a little mean but to be fair it doesn't sound like he was doing a lot to keep and maintain friends right like his whole thing was like he basically wanted to be able to do whatever he wanted and when people held him accountable he like lashed mm-hmm. out and that's, it's a brutal way to die but it's he also sort of lived his life in a brutal yeah, way yeah absolutely that is a very brutal murderer being mm-hmm. killed in prison story and i know that's the stuff that a lot mm-hmm. of a lot of people that come to the old pen they want to hear these sort of things and there there aren't a ton yeah the few that we have are are pretty brutal like this yeah because that story is featured on the behind the scenes cemetery mm-hmm. tours and i gave those the year before i i came to school and i remember that story and the story of the one you did him last season and he choked on his own vomit. Oh, yeah. Earl Bowen and Ernesto Blanco. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and those two were just like the most brutal stories mm-hmm. out of a whole series of brutal stories. I just, oh man, you know, we can sit here and talk about the prison and the, how the men behind the walls were human, but at the end of the day, it is still a prison and some of these men do deserve to be mm-hmm. there. Yeah, absolutely. They're a danger to society. <sighs> and I'm just thankful that we have correctional officers that are doing that. They're showing up every day and, and dealing with some of the most dangerous people in society. And yeah, I think we'll please some of our listeners and uh, hopefully not scare off some of our other listeners so (laughs) yes definitely a brutal one all right folks well i think we got to follow that convict code and uh do our own time and do our own number yeah yeah everybody you know take care of yourself stay healthy and we'll see you all next week if you enjoyed behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe so others can find our podcast if you're interested in more old Idaho penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the old Idaho penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.